The Aboriginal Legal Service, or the ALS, offers free legal advice and representation for Aboriginal people across the country. Given the over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our jail system, it's a service that is obviously desperately needed. I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers, and in this episode of Law Matters, legal researcher at my firm, Michael Byrne, will talk with retired judge John Nicholson about the recent call by the ALS for emergency funding and what happens now that that request has not been met. It's a really important issue and I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Hi, I'm Michael Byrne. I'm a legal researcher at Catherine Henry Lawyers. A few years ago, when I first started my law degree, I started volunteering at the Aboriginal Legal Service here in Newcastle and I've been engaged and interested in Indigenous social justice issues ever since. And I've also been inspired by those lawyers that I worked with at the ALS, those who choose to help those who would otherwise have no one else to support and represent them in court. When the 2023 federal budget was delivered recently, many of those lawyers would have been left disappointed, if not stunned, when a plea for $250 million in emergency funding was left unanswered. In response, the ALS has now chosen, or rather been forced, to freeze their criminal law services in 13 local courts across the state. To provide a deeper insight into exactly what kind of issues this freeze might present for the Indigenous people of New South Wales, we have a very special guest joining us today, John Nicholson SC, former Senior Public Defender and District Court Judge, and before he embarked on what could only be described as an illustrious career in the law, was also a former Secretary of the Independent Teachers Association. In that role, and in all others that came before it, he has been a passionate defender of those for whom the system, in whatever form it may take, has let down and left behind. John has also been an outspoken advocate for the better treatment of Aboriginal people in our criminal justice system. And perhaps more than most senior counsels from the big city, John has spent a great deal of time working in regional areas and has a real empathy for Indigenous Australians and the many challenges they face. So it brings me great pleasure to introduce you all to John Nicholson SC. John, welcome to the Law Matters podcast. Hi, Michael. How are you? Very well, thank you. John, I want to talk about the ALS funding predicament in a moment, but first of all, Can you give us a sense of why you have been so outspoken about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights in the judicial system in particular? What kinds of injustices did you become aware of, both as a barrister and also a judge? And how do you think they compelled you to become so vocal? Yeah, part of part of uh, my answer uh, to this, I think it's a two-part answer in a way. It's it's pictured in the uh, Uluru statement. You remember there, they say we are the most incarcerated people on the planet, yet uh, we are not innately criminal people. Figures would kind of look as though that's not quite true because only two percent of the Australian population is Aboriginal but 27% of the New South Wales jail population is Aboriginal. And if my maths is correct, I'm not very good at mathematics, but one in every 25 Aboriginal males in New South Wales is currently in jail. Now, if you see that as a prison rate, they are indeed one of the most incarcerated people in the world. Yet, by contrast... 
Are Indigenous men and women shine on the sporting field, are prominent in the abstract painting scene, are prominent in stage and film work, prominent in music, are growing in strength within the academic world, are growing in numbers in small business areas, medicine and the law. In other words, in many of those fields, they are also exceeding 2% of the participant population in them. So what I'm saying is that if they were given a chance, if they were given a fair go, and if they were given support, my sense is that Aboriginal people would be able to take a much greater and much more exciting and much more inspiring role than 27% of the Indigenous population in jail. Yeah, I wanted to go to that that insight you just provided us. Thanks for that, John. I, because I recently read your thoughts on the upcoming voice referendum and you cite the torment of powerlessness that... Aboriginal people and their leaders have often referred to, and you've spoken widely about the structural issues that underlie this torment, more so now than perhaps ever before. If the judicial system is one of those structures, one that prevents Indigenous people from overcoming this powerlessness, what exactly do you think needs to change? The powerlessness. Where the administration of justice is involved... The theory is that all people are equally entitled to its administration. That, in a sense, would mean that all of us are entitled to the lawyer we would want to run our case. But the reality is that's not right. For the wealthy, it is. For the wealthy people, they can get any lawyer they want, provided they're prepared to pay for it. But for people who are poor and can't afford a lawyer of their choice, they are entitled to have a lawyer provided for them by the state. Poor people's access to justice is diminished because the government doesn't provide a lawyer of choice. What it provides is a lawyer of competence. That's the legal aid system. Now, we might talk later about how the ALS came about, but importantly, ALS lawyers were lawyers of choice that many Indigenous people were willing to make. They preferred uh, the uh, ALS lawyer rather than being given a legal aid lawyer. That's a lot to do with their ethnicity and it's a lot to do with the beginnings of the Aboriginal Legal Service. Uh, Now, in 13 local court areas, the Indigenous people have been denied a lawyer of their choice. They've been denied access to the competence of the Aboriginal Legal Service. They wanted and can't now have Aboriginal lawyers appearing for them. That may bring about a quality difference between the substitute lawyer and the ALS lawyer. Where that difference means that the Indigenous person is offered a practitioner of inferior quality that, that constitutes a further diminution of their access to legal justice. And just on that, in terms of an, an access to what is considered to be a preferable outcome and a judicially equal outcome, I wanted to talk about your 
thoughts on you know the core functions of a judge, and at least in the minds of the general public, is to punish those who've broken the law, to to sentence the rule breakers, and send them off to prison. I was interested to hear your thoughts on this. You've taken something of a reformer stance against this punitive sort of mindset, and you've spoken about the various advantages of keeping many offenders, you know, wherever possible, out of jail and away from the prison system. And this relates particularly to Indigenous offenders. Can you elaborate on some of those ideas and thoughts for us? Well, the starting point is probably best explained this way. If you speak to the top brass of the prison system, many of them will tell you that uh, the people that they have in custody, a lot of them don't belong there. If you speak to the social scientists who have studied the prisoners, most of them will tell you that very few ex-prisoners come out of jail a better person than when they went in. If you speak to the released prisoners, most of them will tell you that they've come out damaged in one or more facets uh, of their lifespan, of their life being. Prison is really not an effective mechanism for reducing crime or for creating rehabilitated people. If you ask me about my own view, I would say absolutely not. Something like 90% of Aboriginal prisoners currently in prison have been there more than once. That can hardly be a healthy, rehabilitative location. But if you take your time and, and you interact with prisoners and give them an opportunity to demonstrate to the court uh, that they can rehabilitate, this was particularly prominent in the drug courts where women and men in the drug court would come back week after week demonstrating the progress that they had made in handling their reduction of drug abuse. And the research shows that that interaction between the judge on the one hand and and the support staff uh, as well uh, and the uh, offender on the other produce results that don't damage the man and do solve the rehabilitation problem. It's also available in other areas other than drugs. Uh, And there's mechanisms within the uh, sentencing system, which I used a lot, uh, of requiring a fellow who was a good prospect of rehabilitating but had committed a sentence which otherwise would require prison, to have him return to court periodically, say every six or eight weeks through a year or six months, to demonstrate what he had done to assist his rehabilitation. And that includes going to um, probation officers, following instructions from them. It may include recommendations from uh, the judge himself uh, to do this or do that, get a job or uh, find a sport or an interest. Uh, And we can keep people out of jail that way. You're listening to the Law Matters podcast. My name is Michael Byrne. Today I'm talking to the retired judge, John Nicholson, about the voice, the funding crisis currently facing the Aboriginal Legal Service and the many other issues faced by Indigenous Australians. 
in our criminal justice system. I was hoping we could circle back to the funding issue currently facing the ALS. Uh, For those who don't know, the New South Wales and ACT Aboriginal Legal Service was in fact the first free legal service in Australia. And since its very humble beginnings in a small shop run in Redfern 53 years ago, they've provided free legal representation to thousands of Indigenous Australians. John, how important, broadly speaking, would you say the ALS has been to the Aboriginal communities of New South Wales and the ACT? You just mentioned that it was 53 years ago and the establishment of the ALS occurred in Redfern, in Regent Street was their first office. Uh, It came about because of weekly harassment of uh, Aboriginal people in the pubs in the Redfern area, particularly the Empress. Police would be waiting outside to arrest people for being drunk uh, and then they would charge them with resist arrest and uh, there were a couple of other charges that were almost always dealt with. And that harassment had been going on for several years. And so it was set up in Regent Street for uh, assisting the Aboriginal population there with uh, legal representation. That legal representation mainly came from volunteer barristers and solicitors who were appalled by what they were hearing. And they would go down to the prison cells and interview the prisoners. They would speak to the prisoners about um, what was the best course of action for them. Uh, And sometimes they would appear on sentence or fight fight a charge. That combination of the the, uh, volunteer lawyers and uh, the good work that they were doing was seized on by the Aborigines as a basis for uh, setting up their own service. And that service started in Redfern, basically for the locals, and now has spread throughout Australia. It really is an amazing expansion of a concept. The issues that were at its glue were reduction of incarceration rates and quality representation for Aboriginal legal people. What's their importance? You identified it almost in the question. Many, many thousands of Aboriginal men and women have gone to the Aboriginal Legal Service as their solicitor of first choice. These days, not only in respect of criminal matters, but in respect of civil matters, in respect of care and protection matters, in respect of tenancy matters, so that they've expanded the usefulness that they can be to the Aboriginal community. They don't charge. More importantly, they are in sympathy with their uh, customs, with their culture, uh, and with their vulnerable environment. They also have played a, a very useful part in the development of the law, uh, and recently uh, th- they have gone even up to the High Court to have decisions made. They have frequently been to the Court of Criminal Appeal in New South Wales and no doubt in the other states to uh, argue uh, propositions which have come to advance the development of the criminal law. So the Aboriginal Legal Service has played a terrific part within the legal system as a legal entity, but also in the societal system 
as a social resource and a an appropriate legal resource for uh, First Nations people. And one of the reasons, of course, John, the ALS asked the federal government so resolutely for, for more funding was, of course, because of the significant increase in those seeking their legal help. Uh, and now that the funding has not been granted, if these, as you've mentioned, the 13 ALS officers across New South Wales can no longer afford to offer their services. Uh, I mean, you've already spoken about your personal preference for alternative sentencing options. I mean, given that so many Indigenous defendants will now be attending their local court hearings without the guidance of their choice of solicitor, do you think it now means that even more of these defendants will be sentenced to prison? That's difficult to say. In one sense, it, it, it may cause problem. The very first problem it might cause is that the offender might not turn up to court. That would aggravate his situation. Particularly in rural areas, uh, the field officers, which are linked to the Aboriginal Legal Service, uh, often go out and get a, a fellow who's decided not to turn up to court today. So the very first thing is, Will these people turn up to court? Most of them will, but some of them won't. And that some of them that don't will aggravate their position. The first thing that would happen is an arrest warrant would issue. Uh, so there's that. The other thing which I just referred to earlier is what happens in these 13 towns? The new client, it's only the new clients that are being impacted at the moment. The new client comes to the Aboriginal Legal Service and they say, sorry, we can't appear for you now. We just haven't got the resources. What does he do then? Presumably, the legal persons at the Aboriginal Legal Service would be recommending one of three or four law firms. Does the, the customer go there to them, or does he get shy and think, I'll do it myself? If he does it himself, he may be his worst enemy in the courtroom. Very often, uh, particularly with uh, Aboriginal people, there's a, a risk of gratuitous concurrence. They could be asked questions by the prosecutor and they just agree because that's partly what uh, happens in their culture and that may aggravate their situation. In the absence of representation, they, in my view, are very, very vulnerable because they're not assisting the court in looking for a, a, a way to deal with them more leniently. Some judges will exercise their discretion to do so, but others will not. If they're represented, there's this problem I mentioned earlier. Is It may be that some of the representative, representative lawyers will be fantastic, but some of them will be quite possibly starting out lawyers. I don't mean this in any offensive way, but the bottom of the pile lawyers, lawyers learning to get to where they, they want to go. And again, that may be a, a real problem for the customer. Uh, so in the, those places, this is a classic impact of diminution uh, of access to justice. Uh, and in those cases, the results, because when you've got that diminution, Justice is not being perfect, and it can well be a little unfair. Now, they then have the opportunity of appealing if it's in the local court. What, what does somebody do 
if they're on an indictable matter, for goodness sake, uh, coming from those towns. Uh, I suppose they look to legal aid. But again, what if they don't want to go to legal aid? Then they may appear in those courts on their own. Uh, and um, again, disaster may happen. From reading some of the media that's come from the ALS and, and, and other news outlets, I think the message has been to perhaps seek legal representation from legal aid. But as you say, there will be a, a common and natural hesitancy for people to go and do that, won't there? Well, not only that, but legal aid doesn't have offices in many of these. I don't know about these towns, but in many towns in the bush. So what happens is uh, one of the law firms uh, this week, it might be uh, Bob's and Bob's. Next week, it might be Joe and Joe's. One of the legal firms will take over the legal aid work for a period, uh, and they will be also overtaxed and overworked for the period of time that they've got these cases coming. And to add then to whatever case law cases they've got, uh, these additional five or six cases that come in daily in the smaller towns, new cases, uh, is going to tax them and quality of service. Even without the current funding crisis, the over-incarceration of Indigenous Australians is still and has for long, a long time been an intractable problem. I mean, from a purely statistical point of view, it, it's steadily been getting worse. Uh, do you think state and federal governments have simply given up on keeping Indigenous Australians out of jail? And, and if they haven't, do you think there's any reason to believe they have the answers? I'm not quite with you on on that the um, rate of incarceration has been going up and up and up. In the last couple of years, it certainly went up um, between 2006 and 2016. Then it sort of settled down and it now may be coming down. The actual incarceration rate uh, has come down from about four, in New South Wales from about 14,000 to about 12,500. Now, I would imagine that in that group of people or that cohort, the Aboriginal population is generally about a third of prisoners would have also come down. So in the last couple of years, it has been coming down. Very cautiously and very slowly, things are beginning to happen. The first and the major one was in about 2002, with an idea coming from Canada, uh, circle sentencing. Nara and uh, Magistrate Doug Dick was the fellow who presided at the first circle sentencing court. While there was an eligibility requirement, both in terms of locale, that is, you had to come from the area, and from the offences that had been committed or offence that had been committed, an, an Aboriginal person was able to get before a circle sentence in Nara. A year later, Dubbo got a circle sentence in court. And I understand that Toronto might have one in the Newcastle area. And today there are 12 circle sentencing magistrates' courts uh, in New South Wales. Now, the circle sentencing court operates this way, that the magistrate presides, but you've got elders in the community you may have, if it's a victim crime, the victim's family and even the victim there. You um, have the accused there and, and if necessary, his, his family. And they work through a sentence. 
And again, this is labor-intensive, and it often requires the uh, offender to return to the court to announce his progress. So that's one system. Last year, the Wallama Court, a district court version uh, of uh, restorative justice for Aborigines, was set up. Again, because it's in a pilot stage at the moment, but but it has um, a capacity for 50 uh, offenders. So it has 50 offenders. It works with them through the weeks, and then they report back, uh, and these judges and the support staff in the court take great notice of what progress is being made, uh, and then uh, hopefully a reasonable outcome will occur. Now, as I say, that's a pilot scheme. It started in 2022. If it is successful, and the research, for instance, shows how very successful the circle sentencing programs were, and if the research supports this, then that also will result in other courts being created in other parts of the state. So that's that's the next. And then the third thing that I want to draw your attention to uh, is um, a grant to the ALS. So it was given $28.2 million to, to invest uh, in some Aboriginal community-led initiatives relating to closing the gap, right? And there were three sets of programs that were coming from that. The first was um, a bail advocacy service. It was a pilot service, just exploring it, in Sydney and in Newcastle. The idea was that rather than have these fellows in jail on remand, which is jail time before your trial is run or your sentence is heard, they were keen to see if we could put them on bail. I had an association with a place in Glebe called Rainbow Lodge. Rainbow Lodge was a halfway house for paroled prisoners, but I know that it has taken two of these bailed people into its group while they're awaiting trial. And while those two fellows are there, they've got to do the programs that all the other fellows have got to do, but they're free to go up to the shops, they're free to see their partners, they're free to do other things, but they have to reside at the Rainbow Lodge. So that's a big step in seeking to reduce incarceration, particularly when the percentage of people who are in custody, that is in incarceration but in remand custody, I think is something like 20% of the prisoners. It's a fairly solid number. The second thing that this $28.2 million is related to is a child and family advocacy service in western New South Wales. So it's aimed at avoiding Aboriginal children being removed from their families and into home care. Now, that's an interesting project for the Aboriginal Legal Service to be doing, right? So it's associated with law, but it's associated with preventing people getting to a position where they're charged. And then the third thing that this $28.2 million uh, is allocated for is what I call a post-release program, which is a program very like the Rainbow Lodge program that I just mentioned, uh, where in this case, children will be uh, offered therapeutic pathways 
to lead them away from the criminal system and providing holistic opportunity for them to um, rehabilitate. Remember what I said earlier, that if people aren't charged but are attended to in programs, then we can reduce the incarceration rate of Aboriginal people. And that's what's happening here. So I think that there is progress being made. And some of that progress is being driven in more recent years. I mean, closing the gap has been going on for quite a lot of years now. But it's only in the last three or four years that it has focused particularly on um, incarceration. Uh, And they now have um, uh, money, federal money, being given for the purpose of reducing incarceration, hopefully through justice reinvestment type programs. Yeah, that's so promising to hear. So yes, I think things are improving, but as I said to you, very slowly, very cautiously. We've spoken briefly today about the upcoming referendum. Uh, With recent polls, and these are the most recent polls, uh, suggesting that support for The Voice, at least in some states, has now fallen below 50%. Do you get any sense that it's now or never? Uh, aren't issues like underfunded legal services and the over-incarceration of Indigenous Australians, which, you know, I should add, also acutely affects Indigenous children, aren't they exactly the kinds of things that a representative voice to Parliament will help to address? Uh, I see this lack of funding as being a typical issue that might well be raised with the voice so that they could collect the evidence that was needed to present to the parliament or to present to the executive arm of government and say, we we can't do this. For instance, the ALS client base in the five years since 2018, it's doubled. Problem is that the funding hasn't doubled and a voice could collect this information, take it to the government or the parliament and say, we need some assistance. The other thing is I'm actually pretty optimistic about The Voice because in the circles that I I move in, and those circles include very knockabout, robust people, you know, the one thing that they have a soft spot for is Aboriginals and Aboriginality. And possibly that's because of the sportsmen that are on the field or because their mate or because the guy next door who plays soccer with them is there. But I'm very optimistic and I don't think we we will lose. You remember the 67 referendum, 93% of people voted in favour of it. And it is the only referendum that has involved Aboriginal people. And guess what? It's the only referendum that got 93% of the vote. Well, we can only hope that a result like that, even close to a result like that, eventuates here. John Nicholson, thank you so much for your generous insights today and for taking the time to speak to Law Matters. Thank you, Michael Byrne, for hosting this episode of Law Matters, and a special thanks, too, to Judge John Nicholson for taking the time to talk about these important matters. I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers, and we work closely with the Aboriginal Legal Service in regional areas of New South Wales. 
If you or your family would like to find out more, please get in touch. This podcast was produced by Pod and Pen Productions.